Welcome to the Studio Break Podcast. I'm your host, David Lenaway. For today's 26th episode, I had a great chat, a long chat, with Colin Nesbitt. We talked all about pink and green, crushed velvet couches and grave dust and going for a swim. But before we get to today's interview, I just want to remind recent and former BFA and MFA graduates that if you'd like, you can apply to the Studio Break competition, which is open right now. Just visit us at Facebook, and you'll see that there's information on how to apply. It's all quite simple, so please check that out. I hope that you spread the opportunity with as many people as you think would be interested in. Near and far, international, any medium provided it fits those requirements. And with that being said, enough of my jibber-jabber. Let's go right on into this interview. Hope you enjoy it. Welcome to Studio Break. I am here with Colin. How are you doing this morning? I'm doing well. And, um, yeah, we've been talking a while already, which makes me think this is going to be a really awesome conversation. And, um, yeah, I'm excited, man. Um, so I just first like to start out a little bit by, you know, it says on your uh, website that you're from uh, the St. Louis area. So if you could maybe talk a little bit about uh, growing up in St. Louis and how much you love the Cardinals or you don't love uh, the Cardinals. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I grew up in uh, the St. Louis suburbs uh, on the Illinois side. And so, you know, I mean, it was we at that point, the suburbs didn't really go very far now it's a fully integrated just crazy normal suburb but at that point it was kind of like the edge of everything and uh, we kind of lived in the country and so kind of grew up in the woods and at the same time you know we could go to a, a cardinals game that day it was only like a 30 minute drive and uh you know it's just kind of it was kind of weird to grow up like it, next to a big city have a lot of big city experiences but then still grow up in the country so I mean, it's kind of a, a nice way to grow up sure sure and i mean what kind of interests i guess as a, as a kid did you have then in, in terms of uh and i bring up the cardinals just because i i don't really care about baseball and it's about the only thing it's about the only thing i know i can i can do is, is especially in this area talk uh bad about the cardinals the white Sox, or the cubs depending on who i'm around to try to get people riled up but um yeah it's pretty easy to get a fight started that way <laughs> I, there's plenty of good stories about that, um, not with me specifically, but um, but uh, were, what, were you kind of a big sports guy? Were you uh, a loner? Were I mean, were, what kind of interest did you have um, kind of growing up? And, and again, it's interesting also talking, always when talking to a Midwesterner, because I'm curious how, how similar those things are, how different they are. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, when I was a little kid, I mean, we didn't have any neighbors. I kind of like lived in the country, and so, uh, you know, I was alone a lot. Uh, and my brother was three years younger than me, so I mean, almost too young to, to play with him for a long time. Um, and 
after a while, you know, I mean, we got to be a more similar age, you know, mentally, and we played some, but I spent a lot of time outside by myself, um, and I was really, you know, I played sports, but wasn't that passionate about it until I got into high school, and I played football uh, in high school, um, but, you know, I was a, a Boy Scout, my, uh, I guess, like, I started in Cub Scouts, but I was really into being a Boy Scout, um, and eventually became an Eagle Scout, but I mean, I did a lot of camping and a lot of, you know, just goofing off in the woods and doing weird, like, you know, going to, like, scout, uh, they call them camperies, right, and so there'd be, like, lashing tournaments and, like, fire-building tournaments and things like that. Right, right. I got to be where I, I had to get, like, patted down before we'd go camping because uh, I wasn't allowed to have any fire-making materials on me. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, but I mean, like, I was that asshole that could start, you know, like, uh, use flint and steel and start out, like, you know, like a big campfire just with, like, just some, like, some some knuckle steel and, like, flint. And, uh, yeah, I got really into that kind of a, a thing, so. Well, and so, like, in, in terms of then, it seems like that obviously would, would be something that you'd wind up using for, for creativity later in terms of, uh, you know, just put, fashioning things together, if you will. But, um, like, in terms then of uh, just, like, early art making and stuff like that, I mean, did you take then also, like, while you were in, in football, were you, like, taking courses in high school or was kind of getting into the arts something that came through uh, college or something else that I'm, that I'm missing? No, I mean, I, you know, I, as a kid, I mean, you know, I drew a lot. Um, but, you know was in art classes in junior high and high school, but I really didn't take being an artist that seriously. Just, you know, being from the Midwest, everyone's just very realistic. And so it's kind of, I mean, you know how your parents are probably a lot like my parents. And that is that uh, being an artist is an idiotic thing to pursue just because you're never going to make any money. How can you support yourself? And, you know, they didn't use those words, but I know that that's probably what they were thinking. Sure. So when I started college, I actually started out in art ed. My parents are both high school teachers, and so um, that was a more acceptable way to be involved with the arts. And um, that is, uh, when I started school, I started out thinking I wanted to go into art education. Um but I always wanted to be a college professor for whatever reason. Uh, I guess mostly just because everyone just took art as such a blow-off class in high school that I wanted to work with people that were serious about it at least. And then once I got into college, uh, I found out that the way to get to that end is more BFA, MFA, and then you teach college from there. But somewhere along the line, I realized oh, I'm not I'm not bad at being an artist. Uh, and it became a much more realistic possibility of being an artist as the school went on. And then, um, you know, as fate would have it, the economy is so bad that none of us can get a teaching job anyway. So right, right. Uh, now, I'm, now I'm forced to be an artist. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> what? Else. But, uh, you know, it's worked out pretty well for me. Yeah, it makes me wonder how uh, happy parents uh really are for some of us if that makes sense the, the yeah, you know yeah. beware the beware the warning signs of uh you know 
becoming a, a some kind of a, you know starving artist somewhere. But um, in terms of then of like like when you when you started out, I mean, uh, obviously, I'm, I'm guessing just like a lot of other people, you know, drawing has always been something that you're kind of prone to, to being you know immersed in. Um, but um, how did you how did you experience kind of like expanding that from some of the other things that you would take for your your initial degree, I guess. Um, like, how did I, I get into? Well, I mean, just I mean, obviously, like, because you you have a printmaking background as well, too. Right. But I mean, um, was that something that you kind of gravitated towards really easily? Oh right. Um, well, I mean, I you know, I I started out. Uh, I could draw pretty well, but. I really liked drawing, uh, unlike some people. And I had a class with uh, Romeo Besa, and at some point he just told me that, uh, you know, just with the way that you draw, you would really love printmaking because it's all about drawing. And I was like, well, okay. So the next semester, or like my first semester sophomore year, I took Intaglio 1 and Lithography 1, which was kind of a nightmare to take them both at the same time. But um, I just really enjoyed how those marks ended up on the surface. And eventually, just working uh, with Jim Butler, eventually just learning to draw better and better because Lithography is so weird basically uh you have to draw a certain way uh to really get a you know to get a certain look out of what it whatever it is that you're doing you're drawing a very specific way but there's a very specific way that you draw to make things look realistic in lithography and i know that that drawing style has now changed the way i draw forever so I couldn't draw the way I draw now if I if I hadn't gone through all of that. But it, it became pretty clear eventually that that was um, one of the biggest things that changed the way I make marks and the way I think about even making art was growing up in that, growing up, so to speak, I guess, in that printmaking context. And it really changed the way I think and the way I approach ideas. Sure, sure. Well, and I mean, you know, just to, not not to necessarily hammer on so much about undergraduate stuff, but I mean, what was the, I mean, when you when you were exiting that and moving on to graduate school, what what was your work like? I mean, and obviously to see it now, which is something that I'm obviously looking forward to talking about, you know, there's so much diversity in terms of, um, you know, approaches, but I mean, was that something that there was any inkling of back then even, or... Was it still like pretty much traditional kind of printmaking and drawing, or a mix, or? Um, no, I mean it was it was my my BFA show was printmaking and drawing. There was no sculpture at all, um, and actually at, at ISU I only took two sculpture classes. I took a stone carving class, and I took sculpture one, and, and that was it. Um, I really sunk everything into printmaking, and Jim. Butler and Richard Finch both just, I mean, I worked in, uh, at Illinois State University, I guess for everyone listening, not everyone's uh, alumni, uh, but uh, Illinois State University has a contract print shop, uh, Normal Editions Workshop. It was a fabulous kind of experience to, to work in that, but 
we were doing printing for big like Chicago artists and some other artists, but a lot of the people that came down were Chicago-based artists, and um, I really enjoyed that process. And I think that Jim and Richard kind of thought that there was a very realistic possibility that I, I would go and, and be a master printer. You know, I was... I know Jim didn't think it was necessary, and I don't think either of them thought it was necessary to become a master printer, but, I mean, that was out there, and I had brought it up before. And with that information, they, you know, because I had expressed some interest in it, I think both of them, the list of schools that I applied to were all big printmaking schools. And that's just, it was a clear plan, and I was very black and white with my, decisions at that point and it's like well this makes sense I'm going to do this and I like doing it and didn't put a lot of other thought into it and uh, actually the biggest thing that started to change the way I was thinking about uh, making work was I started working at uh, university galleries um, after I graduated and I worked on a show called Repulsion that was curated by Heidi Schlatter, but essentially what happened was uh, there was a, it was based on the psychological thriller Repulsion by Roman Polanski, and all the pieces were kind of related to that exhibition, and they tied in with various aspects of the movie, but all the pieces were hidden inside of this huge labyrinth that we built inside of the gallery. And starting to think about placement of traditional 2G uh, traditional uh, 2D objects in kind of this setting was a really interesting idea to me that I hadn't really considered before and I didn't realize it at the time but I've later kind of decided that that was maybe one of the most important experiences that I had was working at university galleries and had I waited another year I probably would have applied to an MFA program in interdisciplinary studies or uh, straight installation, something like that. But um, at the time, that hadn't really hadn't all really percolated yet, and and so you know, I, I went ahead and went printmaking, and uh, you know, everything turned out okay. But uh, if I was to do it all again, I know that I would have gone down that other road. Right, right. But I mean, I guess too, in terms of like like subject, what 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 kind of um, were you? Gosh, were you dealing with specific uh, like thematic kind of things that you could even kind of relate to maybe what you're doing now? But I mean, you know, like literally, like what kind of work now? Then when you when you're moving on, what was that? I mean, prints, but I mean, like, um, was it a lot of representational kind of things, or? Yeah, um, you know, initially I had started out doing things that were kind of abstracted. I was, uh, I really liked, um, I don't know, kind of this kind of semi-realistic abstraction that was kind of going on, and just really got kind of into that for a bit, but eventually I got turned on to Robert Longo, and it's kind of hard to show, like, a lot of my older work, but um, if you remember any of my older work, I mean, I was I was heavily influenced by Robert Longo at that point. I right, loved right. that guy, and um, 
And now I kind of love him for a different reason. I kind of love him that he's kind of like super arrogant and, in my opinion, not incredibly relevant anymore. And I kind of love that he just like desperately hangs on to this vision of himself from the 80s, essentially, like, you know, his heyday. And uh, I don't know, it's kind of, that kind of is what held for a long time and uh, working more realistically in like very big, flat, minimal spaces. And uh, I think a lot of that still remains, actually. Um, I think actually after you see like Robert Longo's work and then look at my work, a lot of things start to click in terms of the 2D work that I do. Right, right. Um, But my biggest problem with Longo, which I have really tried hard to change, is that I don't think he... I don't think he, like, a, a lot of his things have a, a much depth to it. They look awesome. And that's kind of where it ends. And I've really tried to, to dig a lot deeper into why I'm doing things. And I think eventually that's what actually led me into doing installation work, is that it, it didn't make sense to make this as a drawing. It, it, right. it had to be a sculpture. And then it didn't make sense that it was a sculpture by itself. It had to be a sculpture with a context. And then all of a sudden that context kind of shifted and I'm controlling the entire environment instead of just the space around the piece itself. And, you know, it kind of just snowballed from there. And, um, you know, I guess I'm, I'm kind of a, an installation artist now, but mixed, mixed media installation, whatever you want to call that. I, I kind of think of it as, just being an artist at this point that I think that a lot of people from our, I don't know, like generation, I use that in quotes. I think it's more of like a generation in school. Right. Kind of think about it as this idea of, well, this is what needs to happen for the piece. Right. And that's what I'm going to do now. So I don't know, like that, that the piece dictates what needs to be done. And I think that that, for me lately anyway, has, has manifested in the form of like a sculptural-ish kind of form. Right, right. And well, and I mean, um, in terms of following that lineage then, you you went um, to get your MFA in an entirely maybe different context of where you, where you grew up in. Um, and then yeah. also, you know, you're talking a little bit about how, um, you know, seeing all these different approaches post-BFA, um, and maybe even kind of thinking that, oh, maybe, you know, this would have been something else to apply for. What was that like, I guess, when you initially started that out in graduate school? Is that something that then just kind of seemed like it, you know, just took off or you just kind of saw all these, these different avenues to kind of really be able to kind of focus on those ideas and what, what materials, what configurations would kind of best kind of be used to explore those things? Or what was that transition like, I guess? Um. I wish I could tell you that that's how it happened. Uh, Because that would have been a much nicer way to uh, um, come across what was going on. What actually happened was, you know, I got out. I went to Brigham Young University for um, grad school. And I was working in the printmaking program and just realized, man, I'm really burned out. I really did this a lot in undergrad. And I am not interested in this anymore and I will say that now I still enjoy 
printing when I get the chance to do it, but I haven't done it in five years, and I quite honestly don't miss it all that much. Right. Um, I love prints, and I love the aesthetic, but I don't, you know, occasionally it's like, ah, I wish I could get in the studio and, like, do some, you know, lithos and whatever, but, you know, for the most part, it's like, I'm glad I'm not associated with that nightmare anymore. Right, right. <laughs> but, um, yeah, when I got out there, I just was so bored, and things weren't working, and I couldn't figure out how to break through and get the images to work in a print or the ideas to click in a print that I wanted to talk about. And so I, I took a, a sculpture class, and then from that point, I just started making sculpture roll things. And at some point I had a critique where one of my professors was saying, essentially, you know, nothing makes sense outside of your studio. But inside your studio, when everything's together, it really works really well. And um, some of the things that were in the studio that he was saying really make it work were things that I hadn't considered artworks at the time. Like I had this crazy crushed velvet couch that I didn't really, you know, I just hung out on it. I got it for $7 at a really gross uh <laughs> Uh, like secondhand shop, and you know it was a pink and green floral, crushed velvet couch, and um, you know like that that somehow put a frame around what it was that I was doing that helped out that conversation in getting the the idea of the artwork across, and so I I started to realize from that point that maybe this environment is working for me a lot more and started to think about things along those terms. Uh, some more found object stuff, things that already had qualities that I was trying to recreate in 2D work, uh, incorporate those, and then eventually it just became making them myself. So, Right, right. Well, and, and I mean, um, well, and so, you know, how was that transition then and kind of moving into... Um, that next phase then, I guess. I mean, did you exhibit um, these things that were maybe more like in your studio, outside of your studio then to kind of, to bridge that? Or was that just something then that you kind of, I don't know, how, how did that how did that get get changed then? You know what I mean? Or adapted into what you do now? Or Yeah, well, uh, you know, um, like my MFA show were some of my 2D works that were just kind of in the space with some found objects kind of pieces and um, that was the first kind of phase of that and eventually I did a fairly large exhibition where I did a, a, a full a full installation where I controlled the entire uh, art center and um, that's kind of what pushed me through and kind of made me realize that, yeah, I'm not this, I'm not this thing anymore. I'm this other thing. Um, and actually, I guess there was one step in between there. I mean, I had a show where I was recreating one space inside of another space. And, um, that actually that, that piece didn't go very well, mm -hmm. but, um, I was making life-size drawings of elements from this house that I was, um, Re, refinishing in uh, the Salt Lake area 
and I'd found all these weird quirks about the space, and there was something kind of intriguing about that, um, various aspects of the space. But, you know, a lot of my work relates to these ideas of uh, the afterlife, and I had kind of been convinced that this place was mildly haunted, uh, and not in any kind of like a scary context at all. I mean, it was, it was much more just like it felt like there was someone there when you were alone. And I started to really investigate that space and really break down all of the quirks and attempt to kind of document just my experience in this space. And the piece ended up being poorly installed and slightly underthought um, and, you know, in a room that was too small to house it because I, I did a life-size installation of... Uh, the, the actual drawings were hung in like real space so if it was a drawing of like a light outlet it was you know like a foot off the floor uh, or I'm sorry like a, an electrical outlet it was like a foot off the floor and then like hanging from the ceiling there was like a small Tiffany style chandelier in the room and I hung that at the right height from the ceiling of uh, the art center and uh just things like that, where the, the viewer could complete the room in their head, but it was really related to the idea of uh, viewer interaction and, and their phenomenological uh, completion of this space where I kind of gave them the context to, to work through this architectural um, framework. And I really... I realized at that moment that I was much more of an installation artist and more concerned with issues of space and interactions with space and getting the viewer to complete things without it being in the image area um, and, and, and things like that. Um, and that kind of pushed me out the door into a, a more like just fully installation-based format instead of ever really being like a 2D artist that could show a single piece by itself. And even now, I, I really have trouble cooking up an idea that can stand alone without anything else to interact with it. Right, right. Well, and, you know, and especially, you know, just knowing about this now crushed velvet couch um, and, and listening to you talk about these things, how, how does the idea then of memory or finding these, these moments. Um, and again, I, I'm, I don't exactly, I'm not exactly quoting you from your artist statement, but you know, I'm, I'm guessing that you've hung around a lot of, uh, reusable kind of stores and, and places that resell things. Um, so what, what kind of started serving as that, that thing that you could recognize that would be like, you know, that's the kind of thing that I'm going to, I could make something about that, you know? Well, you know, this is, it's one of those things where I, it, it's, it's just kind of funny because, uh, you know, before we started doing this interview, um, you know, we were talking, just kind of catching up and, and talking about doing interviews and things like that for, for jobs and what have you is the kind of thing that I would, I'd never talk about in a job interview. Cause I think it makes me sound like a, a fruitcake and just totally crazy. <laughs> but, um, it's one of those things where, like, uh, I almost feel like a draw to something. Mm -hmm. um, I wouldn't say that I am, like, 
this sounds crazy. I, I wouldn't say that I'm psychic, but like, I, you know, occasionally you feel like you're not alone or you feel like you have like a weird feeling at some point. And those, I started to decide that those feelings and those hints were maybe someone trying to tell me something. Mm-hmm. So instead of just writing them off and, and being uh, an atheist and just saying, yeah, well, there's nothing out there. And if I have a weird feeling, it's because I ate something bizarre, or, you know what I mean? Or right, it's right. a temperature change or whatever. And just deciding to believe that, well, maybe it's something. Right. And not specifically what that something is, but maybe it's something bigger than myself. And so deciding to pick up this object in this thrift store, a lot of times I don't even use the objects that I buy. They're just in the studio hanging out. And uh, for whatever reason, I think it's important that I had that thing around me and uh, that maybe somehow I'm, I'm getting some type of information out of it that I'm not aware of just by having it in my immediate uh, workspace. Um, but like, for instance, I, I have two skeleton keys that I found in a thrift shop that I felt like a really, you know, I was walking by this this area and I felt like a really weird pull and I turned around and there were these two skeleton keys for sale, you know, and I just, I picked them up and I've had them on my key ring for the last eight years. And I don't really know why. I always bring them with me. I really couldn't tell you why. Huh. Uh, but it felt like it was important to pick them up. And now I would feel weird if they weren't there anymore. Right, right. You know what I mean? And so it's much more of like letting yourself, if you have a crazy thought, just go with it. You know, like, uh, and and if people think that's weird, they didn't want to be your friend anyway, and then go to hell. Um, (laughs) You know what I mean? You know, I wouldn't say that. Like like I said, I think the the people that probably listen to this podcast are are mostly uh, students and students, if you're interviewing for something, I think that maybe it's a bad idea to talk about how crazy and mentally unstable <laughs> you possibly could be uh, in some type of hiring situation. But, you know, unlike an artist talk or anything like that, I mean, you know, it's a free-for-all. I'll talk about how crazy I am all day. Right, right. Um, yeah, so that's kind of how I pick a lot of those objects out. I just let them tell me that they're needed. Well, and I think, you know... And for the record, it's not a voice. <laughs> well, that's good. Voices. It's just like a weird feeling, you know. Well, you no, know. But, but I think, but I mean, I think it just, and I, I think that's super interesting and that's going to definitely lead into something else. But I mean, just to kind of just grab that little thread that you're kind of pulling. I mean, again, I mean, for me, I especially just like this format because it's like the, like for me anyways, with the experiences that I've had and the people that I've met and influenced me, um, this is like for me the the most that I I mean I appreciate this the most out of um, learning about someone and kind of figuring out how they operate outside of you know that environment where you're you know where I can remember being at a CA conference and you know people talking about you know the elevator pitch you know being like you know being able to like like you know express and and you know uncompact all of these things about your work in like a minute. And have it be this, you know, amazing thing that sounded like some, some, you know, super important person would have written. Um, you know, I think a lot of times it's these little things, um, that, that kind of drive us. And, you know, something that I think is interesting, and I mean, it, 
for myself anyways, I've always found that like those little discoveries happen for me anyways, just, just by doing those things and kind of continually working. Um, and it's really oftentimes like those little insights just kind of pop in there and become apparent to me. Um, you know, as I'm doing those things, you know, sometimes I, I, I think I don't even know why. Um, and again, it can be the most subtle things. And I've talked about it to people before, like, you know, for my work specifically, you know, for me, like little significant, little changes to me are so significant that somebody that isn't familiar with, but doesn't make it, you know, might not even notice those things. But, you know, I think those things become a part of us. Um, and so, I mean, just in, in kind of curiosity then, do you, do you ever find yourself researching about or trying to find out about, um, the history of those things that you're, that you're finding, you know, and I'm, I'm sure that, you know, there's some that very much have a history that you're working from, you know, but I mean, is, um, wh what kind of objects then have you worked with, um, or, you know, what has been the impetus and, and how is that verge? Cause I imagine you can probably find things that are very, very personal. Yeah. Um, well, you know, the objects, I realized kind of early on that I didn't have the money to buy the objects that I wanted to buy. Because, uh, you know, the, the things that are really powerful, oftentimes they have a lot of history attached to them, but it's like a desk, you know, and it's like a beautiful desk from the late 1700s. It's like a, you know, uh, it's a Federalist movement desk, and it's this beautiful object, and it's, you know, $900, and it's like, well, I mean, that's, that's a month of rent in California. <laughs> you know, I, I can't buy this. And then I wouldn't have anywhere to put it, even if I could get it, you know. But I, what I started to do was getting really interested in weird historical quirks um, from where I was from or from, you know, different things that I picked up on in the news. And, you know, I have a couple of objects that do have some weird kind of power like like associated with them you know but what that ended up manifesting as is uh, I really got into uh, hoodoo for a while which is the Protestant kind of cousin of voodoo so you know in hoodoo things have an intrinsic value associated with them and that idea became pretty interesting to me. And, and initially I started, I made a series of pieces dealing with hoodoo where things, I was essentially completing hoodoo spells. And the thing that had been really interesting to me anyway, was that a, a, a major ingredient in a lot of hoodoo spells, I mean, if you want to simplify it down to an ingredient, but uh, was this idea of grave dust and that grave dust is kind of like a marker for hiring a ghost. And so I was doing a lot of things that would require grave dust as an ingredient. And that kind of became a, an interesting thing for me and, and thinking about why does this object have power and why doesn't it have power? And, you know, ultimately I, I think that series, it was kind of interesting, but I didn't really know what to do with it because those pieces kind of ended for me because there wasn't a lot of mystery there for people after I had to explain away the hoodoo for you to get what I was talking about. There was just too much, 
explanation involved. And so I, I kind of started to get away from that. I realized it was more about me and my interest than it was about trying to create a, like an interesting piece for the viewer to have a dialogue with somebody else. Um, and that's, I don't know, I mean, that kind of, realizing that kind of helped me figure out that a lot of my interests aren't really great fodder. It's not really great fodder for, for making artwork, you know, um, and that's kind of where I was after grad school for a long time. I was relying far too heavily on theory and far too heavily on so much context that you couldn't get anything out of it without telling people all this information. And that was really bothering me. And I didn't know how to break through that and get to another place. Um, and I kept hitting this wall where once I explained things to people, they were really interested in them and really liked them. But there was so much explaining that a lot of times people couldn't get into it initially at all. And so, um, you know, it kind of made me regroup and rethink why I'm making things. And, and that's kind of where I am now. Well, and, and so in, in terms of that too, cause I mean, if, uh, if anybody visits your website, which I'm, I'm sure there'll be a, hopefully a lot of people that wind up doing that after this, um, you know, there's so many different approaches, um, that you're taking, um, I guess, could you, could you just talk about, uh, some of them? I mean, obviously you've got, you've got drawings up and, and some more traditional things. Um, but like, for example, like there was a, there was a piece that incorporated like a lot of, uh, a lot of photos that were kind of like teep into a wall. Um, yeah. Um, that was actually, uh, a friend of mine found a dumpster, uh, a dumpster full of negatives and didn't know what to do with them and uh, gave them to me. And it was one of those moments where I kind of didn't know what to do and couldn't really see what was in the negatives. So I did contact prints of all those negatives or um, rather I paid someone to do contact prints of them because I'm a terrible photographer and don't really uh, do well in the dark room. But um, they did all these contact prints and once I got them all back, I started looking through all of the images and realized that I had been to a lot of these places before. And so as I sifted through all these, it was really kind of bizarre looking through someone else's pictures that had been thrown away and realizing that I had an attachment to a lot of these places. And that's kind of an interesting idea for me anyway, is uh, that I could be led down this other road and, and be led to this thing that, that really meant something to me and a place that I had a powerful experience, but, you know, not have been there when this picture was taken, you know, and that's kind of, you know, that was kind of an important uh, realization for me on some level and that someone else could maybe have that same experience. And so I started, uh, maybe that kind of helped me get to this other place where I started researching different historical events and looking through things through the, the lens of history instead of so many personal experiences and realizing that history was a way that I could relate to people on a bigger level and started thinking about things in that context more than this thing happened to me or I had this experience over here. We could talk about that type of an idea of uh, 
ghosts interacting with the present or, or even history living again uh, by talking about such and such a movement in U.S. history or this right. kind of a moment in U.S. history. Well, and that kind of makes it interesting, too, and I'd like to have you talk both about um, those those experiences or those works that might feel a bit more personal um, in nature, and then those other ones that, that, again, like you're talking about, might work more historically. But um, So one, one of the other pieces that I thought was really interesting, and again, maybe deals maybe to one of that, those other older kind of themes, or maybe one that's kind of a little bit more personal um, in nature in, in terms of mortality, is the, uh, the regrets only um, kind of exhibition, or at least that's the way that it comes off, to be honest, because again, I haven't researched this enough to really get in, in depth to it, but could you talk a little bit about that? Because again, if you anyone visits the uh, the website, there's you know, a coffin that looks like it's made out of uh, frosting and, um, and, and things going on in it like that, and, and there's kind of like a spare atmosphere kind of set up, um, but could you talk a little bit about uh, some of those those works in that installation? Yeah, um, I mean, you're, you're completely right. I mean, it's absolutely about mortality. And, um, and yeah, the, the medium is uh, royal icing, which is that really decorative icing that's oftentimes on wedding cakes. And uh, it's quite sculptural, and you can do a lot of things with it, but it's essentially powdered sugar and meringue. And, um, you know, the breakdown of the space is it kind of has something to, to do with everything. But, uh, you know, there were a lot of different aspects to this installation. And this was the first full, full installation where I realized I was, this is it. It's on. I'm a, I'm an installation artist now. There's no turning back. And, uh, uh, this is actually the one I was referring to before, um, as the first real full one. This is at the Central Utah Arts Center, which is a great space, and people should look that up and donate money to them. Um, but the whole kind of thought of the show kind of came out of, that. you know, we get older, and every year we get older in some ways, you know, we're, we're dying on some level. And the, the statement for the show is in that first um, section of the uh, portfolio on the website when you open up the, the regrets-only folder. But um, essentially, the, uh, there were life-size recreations of these different aspects of uh, the funeral industry uh, in the context of, of birthdays. And so uh, outside there, you can see these images. There's a life-size headstone uh, frosted, and when you stand in front of it, I buried a um, sound system, and so you can feel the bass from like all of this. It was like a 24-hour dance mix, so it feels like there's a party underneath you. You can feel the bass coming through the ground when you stand in front of this uh, headstone. Right. As you uh, as you move into the space, um, you're confronted with this large cake, and like you were saying, it's very spare. And that space is essentially, it's uh, four feet by eight feet by six feet, and that's the basic dimensions of a grave, uh, what we would be buried in. And, and, and when you get up to the top space, there's a life-size casket that's been frosted uh, like a cake, and there's a 300-rose spray on it. Uh, and I, you know, I made all those roses out of royal icing 
And, um, you know, I was kind of struck with how sad birthday decorations actually are. And decorations in general, there's something about crepe paper that I think is incredibly sad. And uh, it's somehow when there's not enough of it, it's even more sad and it's really pathetic on some level. And that kind of got me thinking and kind of led me down, you know, the road to, to making this installation. Um, it was kind of, I had kind of short notice on this exhibition and it was kind of funny when I was making it. Uh, everyone wants to, of course, lick these pieces. The whole space smells like icing. It kind of smells <laughs> like cake. And everyone's like, oh, can we taste it? And it's like, yeah, you can. But um, I was shirtless and sweating my ass off working in a warehouse in Utah in the summer, in July and August, getting ready for this. So my sweat and chest hair is in <laughs> You can't really see it, but occasionally I would find like a hair and have to pull it off. It's pretty gross. Uh, and so, you know, people were like, I licked the cake. Is that cool? It's like, yeah, fine. Gross. That's <laughs> super gross. But you know, whatever you're into, that's fine. Yeah, that's that's funny, um, and you know it's it's interesting just uh, uh, hearing you talk about this because again, um, I, I was talking about it at some point just that that idea of just being in environments like this. Um, you know, it's very easy to kind of become you know self reflective about your own life, but I think there's something interesting about kind of recreating it, that context. You know, in an environment where it's meant for people to really come in and consider those things because I think, yeah. you know, oftentimes it's very easy to miss, you know, and especially if you watch the news and you see a story about like an 18 year old that, you know, drives like, you know, barreling into like a tractor trailer, you know, doing 80 miles an hour while they're texting right. and that's how they found out that they died. I mean, it's, um, it's interesting cause it kind of sets it up in that environment where, um, you don't feel guilty about, wondering about those things. So, you know what I mean? Like, cause when it's real yeah. like that, you, you certainly can because you're like, Oh, right. There's somebody that passed away over there. But, you know, um, I really like that idea of maybe being in, in front of something where you can kind of maybe feel this base or, you know, this thing that that's kind of distant. Um, but you know, something at the same time that you can kind of react to, you know, it's, it's really kind of interesting. Yeah, and, and I think that, you know, one of the other things I was kind of thinking about with that was hoping that people would do that, but that eventually they would maybe come to the, the conclusion that maybe death isn't that bad. Right. And, you know, and, and of course, that's one of the reasons that I made the exhibition was coming to terms with that. And what I found really funny is that a lot of adults would come into the show and they, well, I don't get it. It's right. like death's a party, like, I guess. But then, uh, you know, it was in Utah, and of course, you know, um, a lot of, there's a lot of family involvement kind of in the culture in Utah, and so a lot of people brought their kids to the exhibition, and kids got it right away. Uh, just, like, so what, so we're not supposed to be afraid of death, and it's like, yeah, maybe, like, yeah, it's kind of like that. And right. kids, oh, okay, great. Right. Good. You know, kind of like, okay, one less thing to worry about. Fantastic. Good. You know, so it was funny how quickly kids could get into the idea and that more adults, specifically middle-aged adults, couldn't get into it, but that, like, old people could really be like, yeah, all right. Right. Back this, you know, like, all right. Nice, nice. So could you talk a little bit then about how, 
you start to kind of also move into that, that realm where it kind of dealing with more historical approaches. Um, but I should say kind of at the same time, I'm, I'm thinking of these installations where you're, you're combining that kind of aesthetic that you've been working through the, the one that kind of feels personal, but then also is kind of incorporating all of these, um, historical references in these installations. Sure. Um, you know, and I think that idea really ties in with this idea that, uh, Leo Tolstoy talks about what is art. And, and in that he's kind of discussing this idea of if a piece is, and he says it can't work with visual art. So right off the bat, that's, kind of an interesting uh, turn of events, but right, right. Um, that I'm, I'm using it specifically to talk about visual art now. But that essentially, if an art piece is made well enough um, and made with the right inspiration, then everyone that sees that piece will enter some type of a brotherhood and they'll be brought together by the piece. And that somehow, if you and I see the same piece of artwork, we have this unspoken kinship to each other, and that eventually we'll all be brought together through art, which is a very beautiful idea. And that's kind of oversimplifying what he had to say, but essentially uh, that was kind of the the basic idea that um, I could start to talk about these different ideas of relating to people about these uh, historical or or semi-spiritual ideas through a bigger historical moment or or movement, and that that would be a way to really bring people together in an easier way. uh, Again, talking about just myself for the, the viewer to try to get something out of, give them something that maybe they could relate to initially. You know, um, and and that was kind of where that all started to come from. Right, right. And uh, is there a a way that that starts kind of, you know, being part of the work then, this more historical, or is there an example of that you can think of? Yeah, so, uh, you know, one of the pieces, uh, the piece that kind of got me thinking about things more in terms of, like, straight history uh, is it's the first drawing in the graphite section on my website, uh, but it's a diptych called uh, In Reverent Memoriam to the 57 Sons of Ireland Who Died Outside Malvern, Pennsylvania in the summer of 1832. <laughs> and so um, that's kind of a long story, and if anyone uh, researches uh, Duffy's Cut, they'll kind of find out the whole story there, but uh, essentially there were all of these um railroad workers that, because they were Irish, were pretty poorly treated, and um, they were kind of executed because they had, uh, cholera had broken out in their work camp, and, you know, no one cared about the Irish, and so, you know, they just killed them off instead of letting these people die naturally of cholera. They had to, you know, uh, beat them to it. And knowing that so many people could possibly have something that, you know, could have a a strong reaction to that the way that I did really started getting me to think about how else can I, I think about history and how else can history be a lens 
through which I could talk about these other issues, you know. And uh, there's kind of a bigger, crazier story associated with that, but I think it breaks up the flow of, of talking about right, right. history. But, um, you know, when you – that kind of led me to make uh, Can't Any of You Sing, Sing Now and Raise the Dead. And that's the, the piece with the, uh, the salt ship on the uh, Sea of Salt there. And, you know, that was really about the whaling industry. And so the large graphite drawing that you have in the background, that is actually the, uh, the foreground of a photograph of the whaler greyhound. And so what you see there are the drawings of a very kind of grainy photograph of the waves that are in front of this ship. And someone had, whoever archived this photograph, wrote whaler greyhound on the photograph as you know, was typical uh, kind of in the, uh, you know, late 1800s, early 1900s, people just writing straight on photographs. And that's actually what you're looking at. So that's like a three and a half foot tall and nine foot wide graphite drawing uh, of that foreground. And the structure there is kind of trying to desperately hold up this drawing, this area in front of that ship and I think uh, I was really thinking about whaling as a metaphor for a lot of different things but uh, it became clear to me that I was much more interested in American history than anything else um, mostly because that's my frame of context and so I really try to only talk about things from U.S. history, and, and I draw from things oftentimes in the Midwest. I, I made this piece after I'd been living on the Pacific Coast for a while and started to learn more about how whaling spread to the Pacific Ocean. And as I kind of learned more about whaling, I, I you know, we, we were the greatest whalers in the world, the Americans were. And there's a fairly famous quote from an English sea captain, and he was talking about this idea of Americans whaling. And he said that, uh, you know, no matter what ocean we go to, no matter where we hunt, the, and we think we have found new, uh, new hunting grounds, the Americans are always there. They're always there first. Every time we think we've found something new, the Americans are already there. And they've become the greatest whalers in the world, but they'll be the death of this industry and uh, he was right um, we hunted the whales almost to extinction and we the only thing that really ended that was uh, petroleum production becoming more uh, more common and eventually we used uh, fossil fuel based you know oil instead of whale oil to fuel lamps and, uh, you know, right. power cars and things, you know, like that. Um, and so that's actually, ironically, the thing that we're all plagued by now is the thing that saved the rest of the whales, probably. <laughs> um, and I'm not, like, I'm not really interested in, in talking about environmental issues. Um, I care about it, but, you know, I'm not out. Right, right. No, yeah, I, I find you. Whale Wars an entertaining show, but, you know, mostly because Paul Blart, Whale Cop, is out there <laughs> desperately putting, using every opportunity possible to put the lives of these kids in uh, constant danger um, <laughs> without really caring what happens to them. Um, 
And so, you know, th- this, the, the whaling industry was just kind of interesting, uh, just because we, as a nation, we were really able to develop based on the money that was brought in off of whaling. A lot of the really rich Eastern families got their start um, as whaling captains. And so maybe it was this necessary evil in American history to be able to give us the initial capital to push us through uh, into the next era of American development. But um, these individuals would go out for years at a time sometimes because there were so few whales left and they wouldn't come home until their vats were full of whale tallow. And uh, what ended up, how I got interested in it is that I wasn't aware of whaling as being big on the west coast of this country. Um, we always associate that with a north uh, northeast kind of um, historical context, right? And what would happen actually is the whalings, the whaling industry was pushed out of the Atlantic into the Pacific because we had killed all the whales, all the whales in the Atlantic. We killed all of them. And that was kind of an interesting idea to me that you would be out there in this space and that it was kind of, you know, endless on some level. Um, just this hunt that would never end. And the way I was kind of thinking about it, um, there was this artist, uh, Jeremy Blake, that I think everyone remembers his suicide from a couple of years ago. Uh, But initially, when that was reported, what we had was basically the story the way that I had heard it was that, uh, you know, his uh, partner had killed herself, and then they were really worried about him killing himself, and he pulled off the look that he was much more stable than he actually was, and went to... uh, was kind of being watched by his friends and, you know, people were really trying to take care of him, make sure he wasn't going to do anything drastic. And then the day of the funeral, he was left alone and he apparently walked to Rockaway Beach, stripped naked and swam out into the ocean. And that was it. That's how he committed suicide. And what I thought was really interesting as an idea where kind of this whole show came from was this idea of, the ocean is kind of, it, basically it's an infinite space. Um, it has clear boundaries, but for all practical purposes, the ocean's infinite. Uh, if something's lost in the ocean, we, we're probably not going to find it, you know, if it's as right. small as a person. And that he is standing on the edge of this infinite space and kind of looking into that Infinity, but using it as a gateway to another infinity, you know, uh, using it as the way that he was going to kill himself. I thought that was kind of an inf- uh, an interesting idea. And uh, I started, I actually got interested in that, the whaling era, the height of the golden age of whaling, if you will, uh, through that idea and thinking about these people that would be on this ship sailing across this infinite space, which I'm sure seemed much larger than having only maps and like a sextant and a uh, compass to navigate. 
um, being out in this huge open space, and then them fighting the largest animal that's ever lived on Earth with spears. Uh, you know, the sperm whale is the largest animal that's ever lived. It's bigger than all the dinosaurs. It's kind of crazy to think about. But the way that they would fight this animal, they would get into rowboats. They'd sail up to it, get into rowboats, and then they'd get out and fight it, literally. And I found that to be just a crazy thing just to even contemplate. And the more I thought about that, what kind of desperation that must have come out of floating in this large open space, this infinite area and waiting for these animals to come swimming by and then being kind of depressed, waiting for that to happen. Then all of a sudden it happens. Everyone jumps into rowboats, fights this giant animal, and then you're out there again waiting for the next one to come by until these giant bats on your ship are full. Um, that became kind of an interesting idea to me. And so all of those ideas kind of associated with that um, became part of that piece. Uh, so, you know, that salt being kind of a strong... It's all sea salt that's in that, um, in that kind of those salt waves that are in front of the drawing. They are, it, salt is kind of a, a powerful protective symbol in, in a lot of different cultures. Uh, it's referenced in the Bible, it's used in hoodoo, uh, and it's kind of a cleansing, uh, substance and it has uh, preservative issues uh, and it has uh, protective issues associated with it and just the idea of the salt encrusted whaling ship sailing on this sea of salt I think was something that uh, kind of has a lot of things attached to it that I, I felt could create a, a fairly interesting metaphor uh, when we think about the, the history of whaling and, and what that could mean now, what it means in American history, what does it mean uh, to be an American associated with that? And not, yeah, again, I, I really don't think about it in political terms, but more just the kind of poetic sadness of that industry is gone, but it is something that's very American. Um, right. And that somehow we all identify, I think we can all identify with it on some level. I, I was really moved with how much I identified with like sea shanties and the history of whaling, having grown up landlocked basically right, in the Midwest, right. you know, right, right. you start reading about whaling and you hear these sea shanties. And maybe that's why, you know, like Irish pubs are so popular <laughs> is that, you know, all of a sudden people are singing and it's like, Oh shit, you know, and we're all singing sea shanties, basically, and you know. But there's something there that drew us all together on some level, and and I think that that kind of imagery is something that people don't understand why they're drawn to it, but that on some level it it does suck you in, and so right, uh, right. yeah, I mean that's kind of part of the history associated with that piece. And so, you know, the last uh, big, you know, piece that I wanted to talk about, especially is the one that's on the uh, the Facebook uh, fan site, or at least the the you can become a fan of it um, for of Studio Break. So maybe this could be that plug that I normally do at the end, you know. So if you're listening to this, you should become a fan of uh, 
Studio Break on Facebook, but um, it's the uh, I'm Not Made for Love piece, and again, it looks like it incorporates um, some lights and some projections, so could you talk a little bit about about that? Yeah, um, you know, the, uh, I'm Not Made for Love, uh, actually it includes those two chandeliers that are uh, displayed in a separate space. I had originally envisioned them as being all one thing, um, and they got divided up in this show, which isn't really a problem for me and maybe it was better for both aspects of the piece to be divided. But, um, you know, talking about history and things associated with that, the chandeliers are from a steamboat that operated on the Mississippi river. They're recreations of the, uh, of these chandeliers that were on the JM white. And it was supposed to be one of the most opulent, um, uh, steamboats of the time and whenever there would be like a dining room uh, the on one of these steamboats there would always be like a stage where you know like a performer could sit and play piano or you know you could see people doing some theater or what have you and so I started thinking about those things and this is kind of a, a stage kind of mock-up and what I started really researching as I was thinking about the stage and performing on a, you know, a steamboat and what did that mean? Uh, I kind of, I started really getting interested in, uh, the musical showboat. <laughs> and so, uh, old man river became uh, a song that I think had something in it. And it's a really, it's a really sad song. Um, it's, when you really listen to it and you and you think about it in the context of Showboat, which is also kind of a very sad musical, um, uh, it, it, it's it's really a, it's quite melancholic. You know, it's not straight sad. It is this other thing that we would you know define as as melancholy. And the song's kind of about uh, you know like levee workers and specifically black levee workers and plantation workers and how the Mississippi River keeps moving by and it's witness to everyone, but it doesn't really care. It has to know what's happening, but it doesn't intervene and do anything about it. And over the years, that song changed a lot. The lyrics changed and it came to mean some slightly different things. And then eventually weird things started to happen, like Frank Sinatra and Bing Crosby were singing this song in this very boozy kind of... Uh, crappy watered down version of it uh, where it had lost whatever power it originally had um, because it became just a, a standard for those individuals and what I found was interesting is that in the life of that song it had changed a lot and this is uh, Judy Garland singing it in about 1963 and I realized that uh, when I saw this performance of it um, it's from a TV show that she had. She's had a pretty sad life as well. And even though it is a clear shift from the original uh, context of the song, she kind of is the perfect person to sing it on some level um, in that she was became addicted to drugs, you know, and probably because of... Um, uh, the movie industry, you know, I believe she was with MGM and they had her making like 19 movies a year or something like that. And so they'd give her drugs to get her up 
and then they'd give her drugs to, you know, go to sleep at night and, uh, you know, really kind of created a, a lifelong addiction for her. So in this performance in 1963, she's tweaking out really bad and has all of these weird kind of sudden jerks and movements. And as I was watching that footage, I realized there was nothing I could add to this footage that would make it any more powerful. I was trying to figure out a way to make a video that would bring together all these different performances that have been done of Old Man River and the different ways that it had been sung over the years and, you know, the different, how that shift in context meant different things. But I realized when I saw Judy Garland sing it, it couldn't get more sad than seeing her sing it on some level. And so to put it in the context uh, of this stage uh, by making these lights that kind of mimic uh, foot lamps on a stage, uh, I think that was kind of the perfect way to kind of wrap up and, and, and kind of make a new context or a new frame to, to put her in. And so what you're looking at is a projection on the wall and it kind of goes down almost to the floor and then those purple uh, lights just kind of flood out and they kind of wash her out but they also kind of bathe her in this kind of beautiful purpley magenta kind of color right right and again i mean it's just such a striking image you know so now that we've gotten some of uh you know a lot of specific things about the work um are there what, what kind of uh non-art distractions or kind of supplementary things uh, uh feed into your 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 world i know that at least from my own experience music was a big thing for you uh, when I knew you, um, what are there any other kind of interests and in, in things, uh, they might like to bring up here? Um, yeah, I mean, you know, music is always a big one, but, um, you know, the biggest thing now is that, you know, my whole, my life every day is art all day. And whether I'm working at, you know, this museum or that museum or a gallery and then, you know, going to the studio, I find my distractions now, I'm trying to have nothing to do with artwork, uh, in general. And, uh, I've gotten really into Netflix and Hulu. Like I, I didn't have TV for a long time and not because I'm one of those people that's like, Oh, TV is terrible. Cause TV is awesome. <laughs> but, uh, the problem is it just sucks me in too much. And, uh, so, you know, watching a lot of TV, <laughs> any particular things, <laughs> uh, yeah, just like, you know, I'll watch, I'll try to, to BS myself and tell myself I'm doing research. And so I'll watch like historical documentaries, you know, PBS documentaries, you know, like the Civil War series, a lot of Ken Burns, you know. Right. Um, but after a while, I start falling asleep. You know, all the voices that he picks are all, well, there we were out in the wilderness. Right, right. And the wildebeest came and ate my cousin's ankle. And, you know, and it's, it lulls you kind of to sleep a little bit. And I got to change gears. But I, uh, and just, to, just so I'm on the record then, uh, what kind of music are you, are you listening to these days? Um, well, uh, one of the other things, I, I will tell you this, uh, quickly, just, um, really into dance, modern dance lately. Um, and I've been really surprised what an intense impression it's made on me. And so that might be something I try to do something with somewhere in the future. Uh, and I kind of got into dance through um, 
researching musicals and just how sad a lot of musicals are. So that might also be something that materializes later on. So the last thing that I have for you is just, uh, uh, are there any, any things coming up that uh, you're excited about that you're, that you're working on that we can look forward to? Yeah, I think in uh, like 2013, uh, I'm doing a show with the Peoria Art Guild. Um, Bill Kiger's got me coming out, and uh, I think we're going to try to do something where I'm, I'm doing something in the Peoria Art Guild space, but also working with, they have a, a recreation of a steamboat on the, uh, the riverfront there, and uh, trying to do something with that as well. So have that gallery space uh, exhibition in that space and do something on that steamboat at the same time and uh, really trying to, to get something going with that. Um, so, yeah, I'm kind of looking forward to that a lot. Um, so Well, and that's excellent. I mean, again, I mean, we're, we're uh, a studio break is good friends with uh, the Peoria Art Guild and, and some other friends, so... It's a great space and and has a lot of great energy there now. So I, yeah, I can absolutely. see that I can see that being a really really exciting show. Yeah, I mean that's I mean that's a that's a hot ticket right now. I think and uh, well, um, again, it's been really awesome having you on and uh, chatting with you for so long. I think we've been at it for four hours, fourteen hours, four four delicious hours, <laughs> nonstop hilarity and, and art banter. Okay. Well. <laughs> Well, thanks again, and, and uh, please uh, please keep us up to date with what's going on. I definitely will. Thanks for having me, Dave. It was fun. Thanks again to Colin for joining us. Again, you can find more about him and his work by visiting colinnesbitt.com. And if you've been living under a rock, you learn that there are plenty of Studio Break interviews. Go check them out by visiting studiobreak.com. Again, you can download those via right-click and save them as MP3s. Or if you like, you can go to the iTunes store, subscribe under podcast, just search for Studio Break, and there you go. Intro music for today was Barron's Whitefield, The Savages, Ship Sails at 6, and taking us out will be Little Superhumans, Death Walks. And though I can't say that my musical tastes are the greatest, you can find plenty of music at freemusicarchive.org. Please check it out. Lots of stuff that's free and downloadable. If you've been putting off becoming a fan of Studio Break on Facebook, now is the time. And there's no donation button. There's nothing. So it's free. You can find out more about upcoming artists. You can find out about this competition, which, again, I hope I get a lot of great people applying. Really looking forward to seeing a lot of great work, so please check all that out. For those of you that are interested or in the central Illinois area, again, there's a lot of great shows going on. Bill Conger is at Heavy Brow right now. Benjamin Gardner is coming up this weekend at the Peoria Art Guild. On April 20th, Eric Watercutty is going to be at Violet Poe Projects. For those of you in the Chicago area, there's a really cool exhibition through What It Is Gallery at 23 East Madison. And if you have no idea what a 3D print is, you will find out there. Lastly, again, you can see my work by visiting davidlinaway.com. Other than that, we've got a lot of great interviews coming up, and we'll talk to you soon.